Well, I want to begin uh, just this morning with a series of uh, songs for Advent. We're going to look at a song here in Isaiah and uh, a song next Sunday evening. We're going to think about the song of the angels as they came and announced the, um, the good news to the shepherds. And then the Sunday after, God willing, uh, a song of Simeon, the old man, Simeon, after Jesus was born, who found uh, the baby Jesus in the temple and uh, sprang out in song. You might say technically they're not really songs, although the angels, I think, are songs. Um, and this, perhaps, you might say is not singing, but uh, it's been put to music, this passage. If you know Handel's Messiah, tremendous uh, uh, chorus that Handel put together, especially for those verses, words in verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and so on. Um, these words were written 700 years before Jesus. So you've got to try and get a handle on that. 700 years before Christ was born. And um, the title is, To Us a Child is Born, because I think that's the theme of these, of these verses. Try and get a handle on the time scale. Uh, 700 years ago, there was a king of England, King Edward I. Got his picture up there. He was called Longshanks because he was over six feet tall. He's called the Hammer of the Scots because he fought against uh, William Wallace and the Scots. He could have been called the Castle Builder because he built Carnarvon Castle and Conway Castle and Harlech Castle to subdue the Welsh. I can see he's already gaining friends in the congregation. So Edward I. Now, can you imagine if in Edward's court a man stood up and predicted or prophesied just three things? Firstly, there's going to be a man from Germany, or Germania, he might have said, called Adolf Hitler, who will be responsible for a world war. Or there will be a man called Armstrong who will one day walk on the moon. Or there will be a woman called Elizabeth who will be queen for over 63 years. That would be impressive, wouldn't it? This is 700 years ago. Wow, if that happened, the BBC would make a documentary about it. And they'd say, look at this, isn't this amazing? Well, today, we're going to look at some amazing words. 700 years before the birth of Christ, these words were written. Isaiah is the prophet. King Ahaz is on the throne of Judah, and it's a bit of a gloomy time. Uh, if you read the context, it's gloomy. Why? Well, because the Assyrians... The Assyrian Empire, the big superpower of the day, is going to come and attack. It's going to exile the northern tribe, the northern kingdom of Israel. It's going to be taken away into exile. And the, and the kingdom of Judah is going to be overrun and attacked. It's going to come in like a flood, Isaiah says. Chapter 8, verse 7. The Lord is about to bring against them the mighty flood waters of the river. There's been flooding up in Keswick. They know all about that, but this is, going to be, this is going to be even worse than that. 
The floodwaters of the king of Assyria and his armies are coming. It's a gloomy time. And look what's going to happen. Verse 21 of chapter 8. Distressed and hungry, people will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged. And looking upward will curse their king and their God. They will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. Sounds a little bit like today. It's not really Christmas cheer, is it? This is not a Christmas cheery message. But notice the word nevertheless. Chapter 9, verse 1. Nevertheless. Nevertheless. God is going to do something. Why are they in this distress? Why are they in this mess? Well, because the people of Judah have known, what, known God and they've turned away from him. They've rejected God. And so as a consequence, there's gloom and darkness and distress. But God is amazing in his patience and his mercy. And so this message comes through. Nevertheless, nevertheless. And this is a prediction here about Jesus. That's what I want us to, I want to persuade you of that this morning. This is a prediction of Jesus Christ. It's all about him. Someone is coming and his name is Jesus. First thing I want you to notice is this. Jesus is the light in our darkness. Jesus is the light in our darkness. We sometimes speak about that, don't we? Light as hope. We say, is there any light at the end of the tunnel? We say, is there, is there any hope in this situation? Is there any light at the end of the tunnel? Well, that's what we have here. There will be no more gloom. Verse 1. There will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. The people walking in darkness, verse 2, have seen a great light. Light. There's hope here. It's a wonderful message of hope. And, and you say, well, who are these people? The people walking in darkness, who are they? Well, specifically, he says they're, they're in the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. There are two tribes. You've got a picture of them. Coming up, can you see right at the top, um, Naphtali, the grey, and Zebulun is the little purple one. Okay? Now that's where the, those tribes were, up in the north. Why, why were they humbled? It says they're going to be humbled. Why? Because they're the first who get smashed when the king of Assyria comes in from the north. They are going to be humbled by this invading army. They're up there between the Jordan, Galilee, and, and the Mediterranean. But, says God, the, through the prophet, in the future he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles. He will honor the people who live up there. And light is going to dawn on them one day. And it's so certain that Isaiah speaks of it in the past tense. A light has dawned. When will it dawn? When will that light come? 
Well, it's very interesting. You read Matthew's Gospel. And we read the story of his birth in Bethlehem. But of course the couple don't stay in Bethlehem. They go back to Nazareth. Where's Nazareth? It's up there. In, the, in that land. By Galilee. And Jesus begins his public ministry and he goes to Capernaum on the coast of the Sea of Galilee of the Gentiles. And Matthew picks up on this and he says this is to fulfill this prophecy. The people walking in darkness have seen a a great light. Who is the light? Jesus Christ. The presence and the power of Jesus has brought light to that region. And he begins to preach, repent. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. And so it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It's saying that through Jesus God is breaking in to the darkness of this world. Have you ever been down at a coal mine? Have you ever been down in the dark? I have down in, in um, the Big Pit Mining Museum in Gwent. World Heritage Site now. You all know that, don't you? Great place to be. And uh, down there, the guide will say at one point, right, I want you to turn the lights off your helmets. And you've never seen darkness like it. Not like, not like here where we just put the lights off because there's still a bit of light. There is no light down there. You put your hand up. You can't see anything. And you heard stories about young boys who had to work down there for 12-hour shifts operating the vents for the, for, the, for, the sailor, for the miners. Glad to get back up to the light. And darkness is a picture in the Bible of, of hopelessness without God. Without God and without hope in the world. And we need light today. And this is the message that we need. That God has come into this world in the person of his son Jesus. In the 19th century there was a German philosopher called Nietzsche. And he argued, of course, that there was no God. It was very trendy to do that in those days. We'll get rid of God, he says. We, we'll argue against God. There's no idea of this supernatural being. There's no such thing as God. But interestingly enough, he understood, unlike many other people and many other people in the culture, the consequences of that, the consequences of living without God and rejecting God. And he wrote a little parable called the parable of the madman. Let me read it to you. Haven't you heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours and ran to the marketplace and cried, I'm looking for God! I'm looking for God! As many of those people in the marketplace didn't believe in God, well, they laughed at him. Have you lost him? Said one. Did he lose his way like a child? Is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage or emigrated? And they all laughed. The madman sprang into their midst and pierced them with his glances. Where has God gone? I shall tell you, we have killed him, you and I. We are his murderers. But how have we done this? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What did we do when we unchained the earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? 
Whither are we moving now? Away from all suns. Are we not perpetually falling? Backward, sideward, forward in all directions? Is there any up or down left? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is it not more and more night coming on us all the time? Must not lanterns be lit in the morning? Here the madman fell silent and again looked at his listeners. And they too were silent and stared at him in astonishment. At last he threw his lantern to the ground and it broke and went out. I have come too early, he said. Now Nietzsche is saying, listen, we've got rid of God, we've killed God, but what you haven't un understood are the, are the awful consequences of living without him. Perpetual darkness. And we are seeing the consequences of that in our world. When people are trying to live without God and get on with their lives. What does he say? Perpetually falling. No framework for right and wrong. No category for up or down anymore. No ultimate hope. It's interesting that Nietzsche himself ended his life in despair. Like the madman in the parable. And Nietzsche was right and wrong. He was right to say that there are awful consequences for living without God. Falling into darkness. But he was wrong to say that we have killed God. As though God were a, a kind of an idea that you can just delete. No, John's gospel begins with Jesus as the word. And you read these famous words. The light shines in the darkness. Talking about Jesus. But the darkness has not understood it. It, couldn't, it could be translated as not overcome it. The darkness has not overcome the light of Christ. Despite humanity's best efforts, Jesus Christ is still shining. As he said, light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Oh, the light is still shining. And we should praise God for that. Have you noticed how hopeful and bright the message of Christmas is? Have you noticed when the angels come? When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And you say, well, what does that mean? Never walk in darkness if we trust in him. Does it mean I'll, I'll never be disappointed? Does it mean I'll never face difficulty? Does it mean I'll never face sorrow? No, he didn't promise that. But he did promise this. You will never face despair. You'll never face despair. You'll never face that gloom without God. Because Christ offers us hope. The light of life to whoever will follow him. Jesus offers us light in the darkness.
Secondly, I want you to notice he offers us joy. Jesus is joy in our gloom. Look at verse 3. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. Who's the you? Who's the you? Well, it could be talking about God. This is what you have done. Or it could be talking about the person who is going to come. And he gives two wonderful pictures of joy. First picture is of harvest. We're not used to this, I guess, in our culture, but harvest. When all the crops have been gathered in and the apples and the corn and everything's been, been, been gathered in and there is rejoicing in that, in that culture. There is rejoicing. You've got to eat a lot because, um, you know, there's no fridges or freezers. You've got to eat it. It's great. Rejoicing in the harvest. There's food and feasting to celebrate. That's one picture of the joy that Jesus is bringing. And the other picture is the picture of victory after a, after a battle. As men rejoice when dividing the plunder. What's happened? Well, there's been a battle and the side has won and they've got this plunder and they can rejoice. We've won, we've won. We've defeated the enemy. And he gives an illustration. For as in the days of Midian's defeat... You have shattered the yoke that burdens them. That's talking about something in Israel's history. Uh, the time of Gideon, when um, the Midianites, they were overrunning the country. They were coming and taking everything. So that Gideon is found threshing wheat in a wine press in secret because he's afraid that these Midianites are going to come and take, and take what, what, he's, uh, what he's grown, take the fruit. And so there's this oppression, oppression, and God gets hold of Gideon and raises him up. And with just 300 men, he defeats the whole Midianite army. And there is great rejoicing. And that's what he's talking about there. He's lifted the rod of the oppressor. Do you remember what the angel said to the, uh, the shepherds. He speaks in terms of victory. A saviour has been come. A saviour has been come. Someone to rescue you. Someone to give you hope. Someone to defeat your enemies. A saviour has been come. He is Christ the Lord. Clearly, God wants to bring us joy. Joy through Jesus Christ. By sending him into the world. I recall hearing a story of a, a couple who kind of grown up in the idea of church. And they'd grown up with kind of a, an understanding of, of Christianity. But then they kind of walked away from it. Particularly, I think the girl particularly walked away and rejected it. Didn't want God in her life anymore. And, and, and went to another place and set up uh, uh, renting a flat somewhere. And she happened to be opposite a church. And every Sunday morning, I think the bells would chime and she would look out and she would watch people going into church and then watch them coming out again. And you know, she said there was joy on their faces. There was joy. And she, she thought, well, I don't have that. I don't have that. And God used the testimony of a church community to witness to someone who was outside to draw them in 
There's a challenge. It's a challenge, isn't it? People, people watch you coming, leaving church this morning. Will they be struck by joy? We got something here worth having. Yes, we have. Yes, we have. Jesus Christ is the joy in our gloom. He's the joy in our gloom. Because through trusting and knowing him, him we experience joy. It's, it's like the joy of harvest. You know, in harvest, God provides, doesn't he, for the physical needs of people. And we can say, thank you for that. But through Jesus, God has provided for us spiritually, our spiritual needs. He's brought us into a, a relationship with, with him through Jesus Christ. He satisfies us. And the joy of victory, the joy of victory through Jesus Christ, we rejoice. Victory over death. Yes, those living in the land of the shadow of death. Yeah, there is hope. There's no, no need to be gloomy because there's the light of hope. Victory over death. Victory over hell. Victory over sin. Jesus is the joy in our gloom. So he's the light in our darkness. He's the joy in our gloom. And thirdly, he's the son that we're given. He's the son that we're given. Look at verse 6. All this reason, the explanation why we can have joy and why we can have light and hope. Why? 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 Look at verse 6. For, for unto us a child is born to us. A son is given. This is the cause for the hope. This is the cause for the joy. This is God giving his son. God the Father giving his son. At great cost to himself. And what is this son going to be? Well, the government will be on his shoulders. He will sit on David's throne so he's the son of david as well the promised messiah he's not going to shirk his responsibilities he's got broad shoulders the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called and then we have these four titles in other words this is what he's going to be like these are his titles What's he going to do? Well, he'll be called Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. Or it could be translated Wonder Teacher. You know, when David's son Solomon became king, he, he prayed for wisdom, that God would give him wisdom. And God granted him wisdom. And people came from all over the place, all over the ancient world, to visit Solomon and to listen to him, to understand see what he was saying because of his wisdom when jesus 700 years later is teaching people he refers to that and he says you know there was a queen the queen of the south the queen of sheba she traveled a long way you know to listen to solomon and then he has these words and one greater than solomon is here and he's talking about himself the wisdom that jesus had you look at the read the gospels you look at the wisdom. They sent men to arrest him. 
the religious people sent the temple guards to arrest him. And they got there and they came back and they said, where is he? And you know what they said? No one ever spoke like this man. They were overpowered by his words. Jesus' teaching continues. It, it has transformed people's lives. It has transformed people's communities. No one ever spoke like him. He's the wonderful counselor. But he's also the mighty God. Verse 6, he's the mighty God. This is the name for the Lord. Uh, chapter 10, verse 21, God himself is given this title, mighty God. So can you imagine people listening to that, scratching their heads and saying, how is that going to work out? He's a son, he's born, he's obviously human, but he's also mighty God. How is that going to work out? I have no idea, they're going to say. How is this going to be fulfilled? 700 years later, the angels give the answer, don't they? When they speak to Mary and they speak to Joseph. The angel says to Mary, the Holy One will come upon you. So the Holy One, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And to Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. In other words, in other words, this person, this Jesus, his conception is miraculous. He's come down. It is, it is a miracle. And so he's going to be called the Son of God. Or another title, Emmanuel, God with us. Did it come true? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? If you read Jesus' life, and his claims, I and the Father are one, he says on one occasion. And the Jews pick up stones to stone him. And he says, why, why are you stoning me? Uh, what have I done that's wrong? What, I've performed many miracles. Which one don't you like? They say, it's nothing to do with your miracles. It's that claim you've just made. You've made yourself equal with God. Look at his life. And he calms the storm. What do the disciples do on the lake? In the boat? They worship him. I was listening to a point made the other day by someone who said, you know, the Jewish first century Jews were the last people who would have worshipped a human being. Oh, the Greeks and the Romans in their myths and culture, they're full of stories about the gods becoming human. But, but Jews knew that that wasn't right. No, their God was separate from creation. You could only worship him. He's the one who created everything. You can't worship a human being. But it's interesting, isn't it, that by the end of his life, we have first century Jews who are acknowledging Jesus to be God and bowing before him. When Thomas sees him after the resurrection, he says, my Lord and my God. He should be called mighty God. The resurrection clinches it. And he's the everlasting father. 
You say, well, how does that work? Isn't God, isn't God the Father and Jesus the Son? What, what does that mean? Well, I think it means that Jesus is going to show father-like qualities. Father-like qualities. <clears throat> As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Jesus Christ is a man full of compassion. When he sees the crowds, he has compassion on them. He feeds them. He teaches them. He cares for them. Well, okay, you say, I can understand that, but what about this everlasting bit? Everlasting Father. Do you remember there was an advert? I was thinking of this advert uh, years ago. It was about washing up liquid. And washing up liquid he was saying this particular brand, fairy liquid probably, was uh, much better than the other rivals. And I can remember the advert where the bubbles are in the, are in the bowl and, you know, other, other liquids and you know, the bubbles just, just go after one wash. But, you know, this particular liquid, the bubbles last. And the, and the advert an ended with the bubbles saying, we're longer lasting, we're longer lasting. And so we were all, you know, we were all impressed and went out to buy that particular brand. But it didn't say we're everlasting, we're everlasting, because that would be stupid, wouldn't it? But it says here he's going to be called everlasting father. How is that going to work out? How is that going to be fulfilled? Seven hundred years later, Jesus Christ is going to die and be put in a tomb, and on the third day will rise again. He lives forever. That's why there's a church today. That's why there's hope today. Yesterday, today, and forever, Jesus is the same. And then he's going to be called the Prince of Peace. Really? Really? Prince of Peace? Well, that one's not worked out, has it, you say? Look at the world. Look at Paris and look at Syria and look at all the headlines in the world. But we need to understand what it's saying. Jesus is going to be called Prince of Peace. And there is, there's like peace in two stages, according to the Bible. First is this. Jesus Christ came to bring us peace with God. That's what the angels sing, isn't it? Peace with God, first of all. That as we come to trust in him and his work for us on the cross, we are justified by faith. We have peace with God. And that's why for Christians, he is their prince of peace. He's brought peace. But there's another stage and it's peace is coming. Peace is coming. Because Christ has been exalted, the Bible says, to, to the, the right hand of God. And what's he doing? Well, in, in a sense, he's reigning, but he's waiting until all his enemies are put under his feet, the Bible says. So there's one day, a, one day coming when all evil, when all violence is going to be put to an end. And Christ is coming. 
And that is the hope of the Christian. That's why we don't lose faith when we see these terrible things that are happening. Because the Bible never promised that that is going to happen until Jesus Christ returns. And he'll be acknowledged as the Prince of Peace. And these prophecies all came true. 700 years later. And you say, well, does that make a difference to me? Does it make a difference to me today? Well, it does if you will trust in this Jesus. I uh, have a friend in America whose um, um, brother was a very um, important doctor in his city where he lived, very respected man, a chap called Dennis. And he'd been battling with cancer for many years. Um, well, for over a year, his symptoms had worsened. And uh, he, he started writing a blog. And all the, all the people in the hospital, the different doctors and nurses, they were, they were listening, <coughs> reading his blog as he was writing about his experiences. And he came to this point where he sent a, a letter to family and friends. And I guess he put it on the, on the blog as well for people to read. This is what he says. Spiritually, I've come to the following conclusions. God in his wisdom is not going to grant the requests of many prayers for a miraculous healing. People have been praying. But he's come to understand that that's not what God is going to give him. I am not angry, disappointed, bitter or frustrated about this, though I will admit to some sadness. He's 51. God knows best, and I thank him for the good life he blessed me with. Secondly, his grace is sufficient for me. He's talking about the grace of Jesus Christ. His grace is sufficient for me. Jesus never promised us a trouble-free life. I believe he has kept to his promise to be with me and my family and to provide strength, comfort, wisdom as needed to face the troubles in life. Thirdly, I'm stopping chemotherapy and I'm not seeking any other active therapy. I believe that this will leave me with more strength and energy to visit with friends and family and otherwise do my best to finish well. And then he ends the letter, Shalom. The Hebrew word for peace. Does it make any difference? Yes, it does. It makes all the difference if we receive this Son who has been given to us. Where does it lead? Well, let me conclude. Look at verse 7. Jesus is the King forever. We're going to watch the Queen's speech, I guess. Some of us will on Christmas Day. And... Uh, Every year we're reminded the queen is getting a little bit older. She's tried to remain faithful to her promises. She made it a coronation. But the day will come when Queen Elizabeth II will die and there'll be no more queen speech. As with every other earthly monarch, nothing lasts forever. 
we say. Kingdoms rise and fall, even the United Kingdom. Uh, but look at this promise. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Jesus Christ is reigning over a kingdom that's going to last forever. Forever. How can we be so sure? The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. 700 years later, those words are repeated by the angel to Mary. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Every time, every time a person responds to Jesus Christ and puts their faith in him, they become a, they become a part of, of this invisible kingdom at the moment but a kingdom that will one day be visible when Christ returns. And the good news for us is that this sun is offered today. This light is offered to us today. This hope is offered us today. I want to leave you with this, just this last picture. I think in this passage we have, a, we have two pictures or two ways to live. There are only two ways to live in the end. There's my way, like Frank Sinatra, or there's his way, the Lord's way. Here's the picture. There's my way there on the left with a little crown. I'm going to live my way. I'm going to sort out my way. I'll determine my way. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. It's me. Or there's Christ's way. Where we receive this son. We receive this king. Where does the left way ultimately lead? Well, according to this passage, it leaves us in despair, in darkness, and in gloom. Because ultimately there's no hope. But if we receive the Lord Jesus Christ, if we say, Jesus, I want you to be my wonderful counselor. I, I'm going to listen to you now. I'm going to listen to you. And I, uh, you're my mighty God. I, I want to worship you. And you're the everlasting Father. I will trust you. And you're the Prince of Peace. I will receive you. Where does that leave? Well, it leads us to wonderful, the wonderful truth of light and joy and life, ultimately, in him. That is the good news of Christmas. That is the message of Jesus, the light of the world. May God help us to rejoice in it and to receive him. Amen.